Caution. Learning in progress. Good morning and welcome back to another episode of Smarter Every Season. This is Paul Harms and today I'm, ho- I'm joined as co-hosts with Tyler Hubert. Good morning, Paul. Good morning. And Hans Stutzman. Morning, Paul. How's everybody doing this morning? I'm good. It's been a good morning. It's a little cloudy, but otherwise we're good. Yeah, I should say too, we are, I mean, it's morning here, obviously. That's why we continue to tell each other good morning, but uh, we're grateful for any time of day that anybody listens. You don't just have to play this podcast episode in the morning. I'm just laying out the morning aspect because I'm not fully caffeinated. You're yet. looking for some grace. Yeah, looking got for it. a little bit of. Okay. The wheels are still spinning. Lay the groundwork, the framework for <laughs> yes. why this episode is the way it is. <laughs> and and I'll further benefit you. Hopefully, this is a Monday morning for us. So I'm I I hope that gives a little more latitude to you from our listener, our listenership. Yeah, the wheels are turning a little slow, but hopefully. The wheels are not turning slow with our guest. Our guest is Ben Schliff. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Ben is with us from Schliff Precision Ag. And today we're going we're gonna to talk and, and go through some details on raising the game and um, trying to do a little better job. But before we get into that, Ben, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, sure. So I was, I was raised on a, a small crop and dairy farm in northern Indiana, my dad was uh, originally from Illinois, trained in ag diesel mechanics, moved to Indiana chasing my mom, um, and joined her father's dairy farm many years ago, and um, did, w- did well there. And when Grandpa looked to slow back, uh, Dad said, boy, my heart's not really in the cows, and, and leaned into the mechanical ability he had and kept up the crop farming. And then as us siblings raised up we got to spend a lot of time with him out in the shop and really developed a a very much a hands-on learning for how to rebuild machines how to rebuild burnt combines how to put in engines all that sort of stuff and um through high school you know my my evenings and weekends were working in the shop getting greasy and i was thankful many times to mom for you know washing my clothes and getting getting a lot of grease out of them and it was in my uh, later high school years that Dad picked up a precision planting dealership. So I began to run finger meters on test stand and, and do some of the kind of the routine jobs that we come to think of now that really benefited uh, farmers' productivity and their efficiency as the, the bigger, larger brand of precision planting was growing. I went off to Purdue to get an ag engineering degree and um, re remained in, in close contact with Precision, and with the uh, the beta year, the A-team of the 2020, we ran that in our farm, and I got to mess up a few fields of corn um, using that monitor. The first thing I remember learning was with information comes decisions, and with decisions, you say, oh, shoot, I should have had auto steer if I tried to make this, because <laughs> now your tractor is going somewhere else, and it was like, well... The information is good, but I have to know how to use it. And, uh, and so that was like a, a pivotal moment in, that I had is, is in my progression from, uh, f- of using technology on the farm. I graduated from Purdue and um, spent some time back on the farm trying to figure out what I wanted to do as a career. And then um, ended up out at Precision Planning being a test engineer. 
And so from the early years of technology, this is back in first production year of Air Force into testing of Rowflow. It did quite a bit of traveling out in the field, um, making sure those products were as ready as the company could, could get them for farmers in the field. And that was testing in Texas and Kentucky, and I met a lot of good farmers down there in my travels, and eventually over to New Zealand as well. This had to be now around like the tw- 2010 time frame? Yeah, so I started with Precision in, in 2009, okay. and so in that 10, 11, 12, I spent a lot of time on the road and probably met a lot of guys listening, and unfortunately it's been long enough ago that uh, I may have forgotten um, them, but, but it was about uh, getting the products ready for the field. There's a lot of good things precision planning can do, but if we can't keep them to the point that they can actually be executed in the field, um, we weren't meeting our our goals, so we had to work towards that. And then with time, uh, I I developed into a a design engineer and worked to bring Delta Force and the SRM network out to to the customers as well as our liquid control product, VFI HD. Um, I was involved with, with those quite a bit. And then it was about two years ago, I had the opportunity to go back and work with my dad on the farm and the dealership. And uh, my wife and I decided that was an opportunity we were going to take and swing at. And, and so as I was looking to wind down my time officially at Precision Planning as an engineer, there was a few other things I said, boy, as I go back to be a dealer, there's all these great resources we have at Precision Planning. And there's a few tools we need yet at the dealership level. And so I got to work on the Mobile Max and the Liquid Max, the tools the dealers need. Um, as I was, I was looking towards being there again. What tools have you most leveraged from your time here as a test and a design engineer that you're putting in place on your home farm and in, and in your home dealership? I think you're looking for hardware tools, but I think the first thing I come up with is, is curiosity. My time as a test engineer at Precision Planting really would challenge me because um, within two weeks of starting, I was in a tan Silverado pickup truck driving to as far south as you can be in Texas. I remember that truck. I hated that truck. Uh, there were worse ones, though. <laughs> <laughs> Did we have one called the Spotted Cow? Yes. <laughs> I think I think this particular one, maybe you couldn't quite hear yourself think when you drove it. Yes. That was yeah. it. Okay. That was it. I, I think I'm familiar with this pickup But truck. it was four-wheel drive, so the Texans let me on their farm. That was key because <laughs> later in the story, I wasn't allowed. Well, but, and you bought a big belt buckle too, if I'm not. That's true. Mistaken. Yeah. yeah. And, and in doing so, you know, you have hours on the road to think as a new hire, uh, which is, you know, you compile your thoughts. And you, I, I got to Texas, and I uh, spent about two weeks there the first time with Justin Cook, and he's great at probing questions and making you consider things. But then we also worked with farmers that planted two crops of corn a year. And so, like, right away, Ben, who was raised on a farm in northern Indiana, his mind says life must not be the same for everybody. And I was working with a gentleman that had a 12-row white stackfold planter, which never had been seen in northern Indiana. And I called him, and I said, okay, we're going to go put this 2020 on in load pins. And he was having some rum problems, and I was going to help him out. He says, fine, let me park the combine. I'll be right there. And I said, life must not be the same as I thought it was. <laughs> and so, so are we you, were, are you washing it or what? <laughs> no, no. Did you pull it out to wash it? He was harvesting corn. 
and was going to plant corn in another field. I mean, he still does crop rotations, but um, but he could plant corn whenever he wanted to. And I spent quite a bit of time with him. The first year I did, the first year then I was with Precision, I spent uh, eight weeks in New Zealand where how they grow a very similar crop takes completely different tools. And throughout the years I did time in, in Georgia and Florida, there was one two-week trip. I had every state south and east of Illinois. And luckily my wife was on the road with me that trip, so she was uh, a, a great companion. But by the end of it, being drug around was, was a bit taxing. So we were thankful to be home. But it, it was a good reminder that there are many ways to do things. We have to find the one that, that we can rationalize to ourselves. We can wrap our minds around. We can keep going. We can fix. And that is going to help evolve the farm along. And you get there with probing, asking questions, letting the curiosity stay at the forefront, and pulling back the layers to learn what they need. But that's also a key aspect of who you are. How about uh, a little more tactically or, or physically, any specific tricks, tools, hardwares, technologies that you've found to be extremely valuable yeah. in your activities? Yeah, there, there's a few. And, and let me start off with saying, like, having the right hand tools, the right power tools, et cetera, is, is like you have to start there. If you do not have a physical tool to achieve the job, then, then you're dead in the water. Hans has this great phrasing of the, the right tool for the job is the one you have with you when you have to do the job. So is that it's, it's roughly that, but that's not necessarily the best tool because the best tool is the one that gets the job most efficiently. But if I don't have the best tool, I'm stuck with the tool that I have. Yeah, and there are, there are things you do day in and day out. For example, 47,000 snap ring pliers. There are many companies that make snap ring pliers. There is only a few that I actually would keep in my toolbox because the other ones don't survive. There are many that work three times, but most planters have more than three rows. And so when you go from a guy that has a, a shop box to this is what I'm doing for my living, you have to be willing to invest in those. Okay? So there are certain tools that working on planters just require. Right? I've got I don't know, five to eight, 15, 16, or 24 millimeter wrenches, just because those are commonly used. But then there's also the, the nuanced tools. For example, I happen to use Milwaukee tools in my box. I like them. They are red. Dad uses yellow, and so they are easily distinguishable about what's mine. <laughs> <laughs> but one thing that I chose to build is I took their battery that has got uh, a cover that goes on it with a 12-volt power supply going out of it. And I took those leads and put them to a simple PWM dial, to a light and a two-pin weather pack and a two-pin metro pack. So now the old Roflow bomb box that we're all used to using with a push a button on each end and you have to plug in to get power somewhere, I've got that off my cordless drill battery. So when I'm doing a liquid system for the first time and I want the pump to spin, I don't even have to have the 2020 fired up. I walk back there, I plug it in, and I have a dial to make that pump spin. And I don't actually have to diagnose anything on the 2020. All I get to do is make the pump spin. Now, it's up to me to make sure everybody's hands are back and safety is, is taken care of. But having the ability to walk up to that, to activate it without any other circumstance going on, to say, I'm opening this valve, is one of the tools that I found really, really handy. 
Enough that I built a yellow one for dad for his batteries. <laughs> and you kept them red and yellow. Well, I mean, it clicks on the battery, so it has, has to, to be, match. It has yeah. to match. Yeah. I'm guessing that conversation went something like, that's pretty slick. Do you think you could build one of those for me? Well, it was, where do you keep that in your toolbox? <laughs> <laughs> and if you wanted it to remain in your toolbox, you knew you needed to build one for. Yeah. Which, I mean, it's the kind of thing that they're not expensive. But after you use it once, you say, hey, that's really handy. A- another thing, so we do a lot of liquid systems, and because we're north, we have to winterize everything. And you can buy RV antifreeze in gallon jugs. You can buy it in 55-gallon drums. And a 55-gallon drum is a little bit hard to lift just by one person. A little bit. Yeah. And so trying to find a, a pump that you could just simply put in there to pump it up to, to winterize your system, again, they make – cordless drill battery-powered pumps that you can set right on there, put your siphon hose down in, you can pump it up to be wherever you want. It's a tool that I that I find handy as well, and it just it takes a job, and it may not be a hard job or a bad job, but just makes it a task that is straightforward to do time and time again. The other thing I've tried to kind of bring with me is is the knowledge about how simple custom parts can get built for us. And... You know, it's an area I feel like I'm following my dad and his leadership on quite a lot. Where we farm, there's a decent manufacturing industry around. A lot of times when we look at custom parts, there's always a conversation of, does the cost it's going to take to produce it offset the value that we're going to get by using it? And because we've got access to, to say, manufacturing relatively close, we can go ahead and pull that in and do some some unique parts for customers. And that is simple things that to get repeated over and over again, or that's just, I can't find somebody else to that already builds something like I want. For example, we had a, a customer we built a planner for, Harvest International, and Harvest is a great product, and they offer a v- few options of liquid fertilizer carrying capacities. And the customer said, man, if I could really get to 850 gallons of carrying capacity on my mainframe compared to the 500 that Harvest offers, boy, that'd be really a big thing. And so we said, I, th- I think we can do that. So we found a source to get us an 850-gallon tank. And they could have provided a saddle that would have bolted atop some sort of T-platform. And I think we could have done that, and we could have met the line item on his quote that says 850 gallons on mainframe. The thing I struggle with is the customer is expecting a complete system. He's expecting an integrated package that the tank looks like it's part of the planter. And so, uh, obviously, as a design engineer, I've got the ability to uh, model up and create a saddle that looks like it's supposed to be part of the planter. And so then he gets his planter, and he comes up for training, and he goes through it, and, like, it. It's outside of his worry at all. The, the tank was something we had, or the, the saddle for the tank was something that we did to make it seem like a seamless experience. And so he never has to worry about any nuance of it. It's already been taken care of, and it's going to fit and, and function for him very well. And you're targeting not just the curb appeal, the, the look and the feel of it, but also the base functionality because it's, it's designed to inter, interact, connect in seamlessly. Yeah, and I think it also drives a fantastic customer experience as well. Because on the estimate we give them, 
it does not say and has a good experience, right? That's one of this one of the things we just have to do is that they are happy with the product at the end of it. And and whether we use angle iron and we paint it black. Maybe you should should we have that as a line item I'm like Yeah. Happy? Happy. <laughs> That's it's a goal I have in life. <laughs> so so whether we use angle iron and we paint it black or square tubing or whatever. At the end of the day, if I can do the little things that helps keep their experience good, I'm going to do that. Now, for our dealership, because I've got uh, software tools and because we have access to manufacturing, those costs to get that done are relatively lower. And I understand a lot of dealers won't be able to do that, and and that's completely fine. It's an area we found that we can provide additional value to a lot of our customers. And there's there's some of these unique things like the saddle that we did for this customer. But there's also a lot of things that, like when we get to the row unit, opportunities to route the extra harnesses we're putting on, the extra hoses across the mainframe, those kinds of things where we can increase product reliability just because we're keeping things routed out of the way. If I can increase long-term lifespan because I'm putting the liquid fertilizer filters on top of nothing and I've got them suspended out over nothing so that they can drain them all the time and they can actually care for the product in the way they want to. If I build in a rinse tank on every liquid system that goes out the door so that they can rinse it whenever they want so that winterization is not a two-day burdensome job, it's just a half-hour task that needs completed, I think we're giving them wins all throughout the whole experience, which is really just pulling back up to the products they got from us are above and beyond on the service level that they would get from John Deere or Case IH or Kinsey or whoever else down the road as well. So I'm reminded of a show that I watched a long time ago, and this has kind of become a favorite quote of mine. But at some point, there was a committee on the show that was going to work on a presentation. And the boss had basically told them, you know, in giving them guidance, just don't turn it into a camel. And they said, well, what do you mean? What's a camel? And they said, a camel is a horse that was put together by a committee. So in other words, each person on the committee came in and did their own job, and they were trying to build a horse, but the end product looks like a camel. So how much of that is just a mindset of, I'm going somewhere, Paul, I know, <laughs> let me get there, <laughs> is a mindset of, it's not about, I installed a V-apply system, I installed a Delta Force system, I installed an X system, it's about how do we make all of these systems look good on a planner. So what I, that's what I'm getting at is the question of how much of that is just kind of maybe a mindset shift of not thinking so much about a single singular product install, but a holistic planter outcome, if that makes sense. I, I think a lot of it is. I mean, and it, and it comes down to understanding as a dealer, what tools do I have to actually achieve a good final product? Because there's there's a lot of, you know, Harnesses, hoses, et cetera, precision planning, you can get those from. But when you get out there and you say, boy, I've got 17 harnesses going this way, and I've got cable ties to hold them down. And while I can physically achieve that, what is the lifespan of that? Or if I actually, one of those harnesses goes bad, or we have to take apart a connector to diagnose it in the future, I've now made this big mess. So if I can do something where I run five hoses together here in a bundle that I know there's no connectors in, and then I can run three here, and then I've got individual hoses laid out that I can see everything. In my mind, you know, this is a personal impression. I think it looks cleaner. 
But I also know that it's easier to diagnose when we can see things and we can understand the system that's going on. And we can also be more predictable with where they go when they fold, when the planters flex, when things go sideways that I can maintain it in the future as well. Okay, so here's my struggle. I am not a design engineer. Mm -hmm. Maybe I don't have the confidence to fabricate or to make some custom parts, right? Are there, are there companies, are there websites, is there something you've come across in your travels, in your time as a dealer to say, this is not a custom part, we've ordered this, and maybe we've changed the color. Maybe we've customized it a bit, but in a very simple way. What are the places or things that you've come across to say, if that's not your strength, I would recommend you go here and take a look at X because they have a lot of good bracketing, hosing, parts, whatever it may be that's already ready, that's that's order and can be applied to a lot of planners. Does that make sense? It does. It does completely. The the first, I think there's about four four things I want to take away. One, I use Amazon.com and McMaster Car a truckload. Okay. okay. Because convenience rules. And, and when I'm charging customers for my time, if I have to do a half hour to research something and it ends up costing me $10 – or if I can get it from Amazon and it'll be here tomorrow and it costs me 15 I would rather go that route anytime. So one thing I've started using quite a bit is colored heat shrink. Okay, We all imagine heat shrink to be small for individual wires, but they also get heat shrink for the end of fishing rods. Okay, So you can get anywhere from 2-inch to 1-inch heat shrink with actually a grip on it and put that around whatever. And that's fantastic for labeling. Okay, So... When I build a multi-fertilizer planter, everything gets labeled either green or yellow. That's the pushing that color tube I use, and all my valves get labeled, and I use that. I also use the same uh, colored heat shrink on hydraulic connections at the hitch. Right? There, are, there are a lot of good products out there to do that. This happens to be my favorite one because I can get colors that match, and I think it's relatively cost-effective. At McMaster Car, as a truckload of universal parts... One thing that I'm a big fan of is using P-clips, bolt-on vinyl-coated P-clips whenever possible rather than zip ties because it doesn't matter how long I wait to put the cable tie on, I usually forget to run something through it. And a P-clip I can take apart, put back together, and it doesn't have a sharp edge, and I think it drives the, the professionalism a little bit higher as well. It doesn't break down over time. Zip ties will eventually break down in the heat. Mm-hmm. In the sun. Yeah. I like, yeah, I actually like the anchored Velcro strips. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You get those from McMaster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there we go. So if you haven't heard the of McMaster before, it's M C M A S T E R C A R R dot com, and they have basically the the world available next day, like Amazon. Those that's that's what you're using those two sites for is any of the tools pieces to enable your business. To continue next day. Mm-hmm. And, and part of that goes with, you know, on liquid fertilizer stuff, we keep a stock of stainless steel hardware as well that we, we utilize anytime we're near stainless parts. So I don't know if a customer sees that and knows that right away, but I know if I have to take it apart in the future working on that planner, it will come apart. And that's a win. The third thing is um, something that we've done probably for the last 10 years, or I know Dad has done long before I came back, so we can throw out the design engineer part. If you build it out of cardboard and you walk into a fab shop, most fab shops will build it for you. You just say, I want this out of quarter-inch steel, or I want this out of eighth, 
or whatever. It is referred locally as Amish CAD, where you just build it with cardboard and you show up and then you can say, I need however many of these. And cardboard can be bent, you know, the same way. And you can put extra tape on it to hold it. And you can actually mock up some really good things. And so we have um, two drawers and one filing cabinet that is our blueprints for those kind of projects where we did a cardboard cutout and we go to town on that. You're basically saying you have drawers of used boxes that you've saved in nice flat structures so you can go back and use them as... Yeah, they're not as organized as they should be. (laughs) But I know that, you know, vacuum tube supports on a specific planter we did. We had to rearrange the vacuum. And we said we need four of them that look exactly the same. And we took them to them. Now, we also have the gift of having a variety of powder coaters around as well. And there's one gentleman 10 minutes away that likes to work on antique tractors. And so fundamentally, we have a, a mutual bond that I can take in parts on Monday and have them available on Friday, whether I've made them, whether another fab shop has made them, whatever that is. And so utilizing that goes a long ways. But there's other dealers that I know to talk to that don't have that same access locally to a relatively quick turn powder coat shop. And so they just build their, all their parts out of stainless steel, right? And that, that still provides a nice professional-looking part, gives them the appeal they want, the performance they want, and removes one more step. You end up paying a little bit more on steel prices up front, but it, it provides it at the end. Number four, I don't know that this is going to fall into the shameless plug category, but, but we'll go with it anyhow, is that, that we actually do sell these parts we design to many other dealers, whether they're local or whether they're across the U.S. And this is where it comes back to me being a design engineer and in documentation. If I do something once, I take notes on it. If I say, this is a planter that has come through the shop, and I would have liked to have this part on a different one that I did, I'll go ahead and write down what it was. I'll quote if I was going to get more volumes so that I can understand what the real cost of production is. So that Next time we're quoting a system for someone else and say, boy, I'd I'd really like to have that part. I know what that price is that I can go ahead and include it right away. And and that goes from simple things like harness routing guides to not complete pump systems, but but adaptations for pumps to tank mounts. Uh, We do quite a bit of wing fertilizer tanks on the 1770, 1775 planters. And so that's something that we offer that, that we're not, it's not like a core part of our business, but we've already done the work. And I feel there's a lot of other precision planning leaders out there that are teammates with us. And if my teammate has knowledge about something, boy, I want to be able to tap into that and use that to serve my customers as well. You're hitting commonly three to four makes and models of planners. So that's the, the heart of the lineup in your region, right? Mm-hmm. So that's where that repeatability comes from if I know I'm going to be working with another you know 12 row NT planter next year and another one next year or half of my volume this year is going to be on 12 and 16 row NTs now I can start to expend a little extra energy to streamline make things look a little more professional um, and and the installation more straightforward that's that's a continual payback. It's worth the effort to establish a relationship with a, a fabrication shop nearby or something. So you can get that long-term gain. Yeah. In, in our dealership, about 
70 to 80 percent of the planners that we deal with are 16 and 24 year old 1770 nts 1775 nts and and then even like outside of that there's a few of the 1790s that come through we've got some kinseys that come through and we're getting a few more harvest internationals that are coming in which have a lot of common techniques but there's also times like if we if we establish something that works well on the 1770 and we say man that worked real fantastic and I've got a planner coming in that's a Kinsey lift and twist. I don't have the part already designed, but I know what works well on a green planner. So that when the blue planner shows up, I just say, now where can I put this part? And I need it in black instead of in green. And, I, and I'll have to tweak the design. Whether I have one on the shelf and I modify it and paint, get it powder coated black, or whether I start from scratch is, is kind of irrelevant. What it comes down to is the fact that I already know what I want. I know how the best way to achieve it is or how a good way to achieve it is. And I don't have to come up with a decision on where I'm going to mount a fertilizer pump, where I'm going to mount a filter, where I'm going to mount a PDM, where I'm going to mount a rinse tank. All of these things that you have to noodle about and, and you get kind of in this individual part mindset. If we can keep it back as a system and say, if I can put this thing on here, I know it accommodates a handful of hard decisions that I usually have to make that really drives us to be more effective in the shop as well, uh, as well as giving the customer something that is serviceable and maintainable and is going to serve him going forward. So, Ben, your comment there, a little bit of repeatability. Not only are you lo- been talking a lot about professionalism and making something look like it came from the factory that way, but you're also talking about the repeatability and, and I'm doing the same thing over and over again. What does that do for the dealership side of it, if everything's being, if it's the repeatability side of it that's coming out of it. Yeah. So, I mean, there's always a balance of the dealership side between manpower and time and, and kind of decision maker time versus execution time. We've got a handful of young employees that are great. If I can clearly communicate the task, they can go ahead and achieve it. But there's a lot of times when, when we have to make the decisions and that takes someone with more context to do it. And so that relies on, on um, people with more, more history, more context to go ahead and do that. And if we can drive some of the tasks or the, the processes from decisions to just repeatable things, I can now start to offload those. And the training to have someone else do it is so much easier that it doesn't take someone with such a finite amount of time to work through that that I can work on solving the next customer's decisions rather than going and, and plumbing up every nuance of the planter. But that comes down to, again, having good documentation and good clear communication, which is kind of where we started at as well. But there's, there's things that once we get them done once and the training is done, the access to just bolt the parts on is so routine. And I, and I think a lot of dealers can relate to that, you know, the first Delta Force system they did, there was a lot of trying to figure it out. And can you imagine if, if every Delta Force system you did in the future, you had to go through that same learning of what all you had to figure out? Yeah, there's some parts that you're just bolting on again, but if you have to figure that out, and I think that's a lot of fear that dealers I talk to have about liquid systems, is that it takes 15 different unique decisions to figure out what to do things. And I'd say when, it, when a 1770 or a 1775 planter comes in our shop, the number of decisions I have to make is about three because I have all the other ones already predefined in my mind what a good decision is and what a reasonable decision is. And obviously we can deviate, 
but that just that reduces it so much that I can clearly clearly communicate expectations and cost up front, which is going to give them a better experience at the end of the day. What about in season? Does the repeatability of the install and knowing where everything is, does that help in season as far as support goes? Yeah, I, I think definitely in and there's two things. One is that when I talk to him over the phone, I don't have to think back about what decision I made when I worked on his planter. I can just think, did I make my normal decisions or use my normal parts? And if that's the case, I know what I would have done. And I would have known I would have put his fertilizer pump here and his filters are there. And the plumbing was this. And that goes a long way. So it, it takes a burden off my mind that I have to remember everything about it. And the second thing is it puts uh, electrical connections in places that are accessible. It puts uh, hydraulic, not hydraulic, uh, liquid fertilizer connections in places that are above nothing so that if they do have leaks, if they do need to pop things apart to service them for any reason, the cost of service is not so high. And it also lays things out in a, in a manner that we aren't just piling spaghetti noodles on top of spaghetti noodles on top of spaghetti noodles. And, and that can be done without some of the tools that we, or the, the brackets, the, the layout guides we've had. But the diligence for the guy in the shop to do it is usually just a cable tie and get it done. And if we put some of those formats in place, we're more likely to actually achieve that, uh, that install that's going to be serviceable and going to be reliable. So before we get too much further down this road, I want to circle back to something on you had brought up McMaster Car. I would recommend, because I I'm, I'm, have perused their website, if you've never been to McMaster Car's website, even if there's not something right now at your dealership that you can think of that you need to order, I would still recommend going there and just going through all of the lineup that they have. It is very impressive. There is plenty of things to service an agricultural business on McMaster Car's website. So just being aware of that and all that they have, I, I think is a very good idea. You had just mentioned, got all of our dealers in trouble doing that. <laughs> that's that's kind of like promoting the Snap-on Tool guy, yes, it isn't is. it? It yeah. is. Yeah, not with us though at home. So that's no. that's not that's not on me. Huh? <laughs> uh, the other thing was you had mentioned it being a little bit of a shameless plug to talk about some of the brackets that you sell. I think that's a great idea. If I don't know, how can I figure out what you guys feature? And do you have any limitations on maybe where you're willing to send some of these brackets? Yeah. So, and do you send just the brackets, or will you send the blueprints and I can get them fab locally? Do you sell? Like, mm. What do? What range do you sell? And and I'm how curious. can I find it? Yeah, these are all real good questions. Um, so it's not a core part of our business that we're trying to grow, but it's something we feel like we have to do to serve our customers in the manner we want. But that being said, many other precision dealers do buy these parts from us. If you go to our website, which is schliffprecisionag.com. You'll come across the top, um, and there's an area for manufactured parts. And there are certain ones that have kind of one-sheet one sales sheets for defining generally what they are. They don't have prices at that point because prices are constantly in flux every time we order. But you'll see some of the things we do. It's not on there today, and I can try to have it done by the time this podcast gets posted, is the probably five- or six-page list of part number, description, and price of the wider range of things we do as well. Those are probably the best few things that I'd recommend you to do. 
You can always look at pictures on our website of how our installs get done. And if you see something you don't recognize, feel free to shoot us a line about, hey, what is that? Is that something you did? Or is that something you can point me to the supplier on? That, that's for sure. Paul, your question about is where do we ship them to or, you know, what's the limitations? We feel like our marketing area is, as long as it's on the earth, you know, we, we like to help people out. Now, there's just times it doesn't make sense. We ship pallets all across the U.S. Um, from some of my connections and traveling in New Zealand, we still service, you know, some things to those customers when it makes sense. But by and large, there will be a point where shipping costs trump everything else. And so it's, it's not really worth it. We do have, um, you know, thoughts in place. Hey, if it makes sense that you have a fab shop and you don't have a design engineer on staff and you just want prints to build them, that we'll have a conversation about what that makes sense to get them built or to send you one and you just take it to them and say build more if shipping costs come to us. There are certain things, though, that we do that it doesn't make sense to do. You know, like our wing tank kits, they're, they're a little bit more complicated, but part of the reason we've been able to succeed so well at them is the tank manufacturers just across the border in Ohio, and we basically get free shipping to our farm on tanks. And if we, if for example, a Harvest International planner we did, wanted a gray tank, the closest gray tank we could find was out in Kansas, and that's where they are being made. And so the cost of shipping the gray tank in changed the scale for what that project ended up being. And so some of these things make sense because we're close to cost of, or we're, we're close on the production side, but never has that been a limiting factor on our end to say we're not going to be curious about if it makes sense to help you reach your goal. We're up for that conversation. We'll clearly communicate what we do. I am not to the point that I have enough free time, though, to offer design services for anybody. So if it fits on a 1770 or 1775 NT, I've probably got something. If you say, can I make this work on my monosome stackfold? I'm probably going to say, well... Here's one try. Yeah, here's one try, and I could get it in baby blue if you needed me to. <laughs> but if it doesn't fit, like, I, I can send you parts, but there's, you know, I, I Go am, back to the to the cardboard to get the cutout and, and mm-hmm. contact your local fabrication. Mm-hmm. That, that seems like it's one of the stronger recommendations is the take your curiosity and a piece of cardboard and a phone book and find out who your local fabrication shop is, grab something, noodle it together, and take it to them and say, hey, can you make me make me one of these? And yeah. and start building that relationship with a fabrication shop near you. Yeah. And, and I think there's also things I've learned here. You know, I sat three desks away from the R&D purchasing team. And I got to watch how they approach suppliers and how they present themselves as kind of a customer that a supplier wanted. And so when when I was trying to find more suppliers in our area... I, I crafted a one to two paragraph kind of brief history of who Schliff Precision Ag is, the kind of customers we serve, when our busy seasons are, when our you know, calm seasons are, and just how I would have expectations that we would do business. Because if the guy, that w- the fab shop we walk into is expecting a DXF file and I walk in with a cardboard cutout, I'm going to feel insecure because I don't have what they want and we're not actually going to be able to do business. But if I present myself truthfully and give them the opportunity to respond and at least say, yeah, we can help you in this way, shape, or form, or that's really not the area we serve, then we're going to save everybody's time. And I, I just would encourage you guys, like, 
my dad's not an engineer in any kind of form. Like if he barely can put it down on cardboard or, or print it. I mean, his mindset is I have an idea in my head of what I want, but he's walked into, there's several machine shots close to where my dad, dad lives and routinely will take a piece in and said, I want this to do this. And it's just a piece of steel. That's, you know, I want this modified to this, or I want to mount this to this. And they're, they're awesome at doing that. So I just in, encouragement, find out what machine shops are that type of machine shops. Um, don't be intimidated by the fact that it's a machine shop. Because we do sell to a few other dealers, we've been able to increase our volume some, which lets these costs parts cost even less, which makes it easier for us to justify using them. Because now if I'm just saving two to five minutes a row, it starts to justify it versus when I started doing it, I was like, boy, this has really got to be in the half hour row time saving that I get, or I'm really going to have to justify this. But as some of these just become more routine and we just use them all the time, Part cars drop, and we really then be be able to like the level of service we're providing is just a standard level. That and it it includes these improved features. What was the? I'm gonna I'm gonna completely shift. We've kind of gone down this direction for a bit. Before you do, let me jump in real quick because yeah. I just want everyone to know you had a reference Schliff Precision Ag for folks to go and look at the parts that you guys have. Better spell that. That's S C H L I P F Schliff Precision Ag. That's it. Dot com. That's okay. it. I want to get that in to make sure everybody knew that before. Very good call. One other thing that they may see on there when they when they look at kind of a, an order guide or price list that we put together is that on that same document, I throw together bundles of parts. For example, fitting kits. So when we talk about putting wing tanks on a planter, I have a bundle that is a plumbing kit to plumb that together. Now, rarely... Do I put all those parts in a box and send it out the door? But what it does provide me with is the cost to plumb up the wing tanks. So that when we get back to customer expectations and a quote or an estimate we're providing, we put on two wing tanks. We don't put and plumbed on there because obviously he knows that. But that when we're developing that quote, I don't have to say, well, I'm going to need two inch and a half valves. and I'm going to need 17 flange clamps and I'm going to need about 52 foot of hose when we go through that process, we say, here's what it costs to plumb them. And we're probably plus or minus, I don't know, 15, 20%, but it's good enough to get things out the door. And this goes back to your documentation, your engineering days of you went through it once and you took good notes, mm-hmm. or you went through it once, took a couple notes. The second time you hit it, you took very good notes so that the third time around or any future times around, you had progress mm-hmm. going forward. Mm-hmm. And and there are times we feel those numbers are accurate enough to bill on, and there are times those numbers are accurate enough to quote on. But, but being able to look at that early on rather than saying, here's what it's going to cost plus fittings, which is an unknown number nobody knows. And so having some of that clarity also, they'll, they'll see if they look at that order guide. Okay, Ben, I want to switch gears and talk about diagnostics. That is a, obviously a very general statement or very general category. But what I'm hoping that comes out of this conversation is I believe that you have some unique experiences as farmer, engineer at precision planting, and as dealer. In conversations before between you and I, you have mentioned thinking like the 2020. And I want to dive a little bit deeper into that. What is, how do you do that? I I would start with, just explain that sentence. Thinking like the 2020. Start there. Yeah. 
I mean, I have a, a unique history of what how the 2020 thinks, that's for sure. But fundamentally, we have to remember it's a computerized controller. And it's displaying information as best it thinks it can to help, or at least in the ways that, that it was designed to do with the software and, and the sensors it has to communicate the information. But there's things it doesn't know, and there's things it assumes, right? And, and a lot of what it assumes is, is the order of things that you care about or what other things that you've validated outside of its control. Um, but if I can think about what the 2020 could know, and then therefore the thing it's telling me, I can also think about what the 2020 doesn't know yet. And therefore I can say, it's making these assumptions. Do I know any of those assumptions to be true or false? And that really helps drive me the most. So when you're on the phone working through a situation with a grower, what are the things that you have found that maybe you took for granted or the things that you've learned in stepping into the role of, of a dealer? Yeah. Be- because part of what I'm hypothesizing here is as a precision engineer, you were still at times going back to the farm to help dad, but maybe didn't have so much hands-on day-to-day potentially troubleshooting or setup work that happened as a, as a dealer part of that relationship. Mm-hmm. Is that a fair assumption? And then that's where the question comes from of, is there anything that have kind of been eye-opening to you in, in that role as a dealer? Yeah, I'd, I'd say it was a, obviously a different perspective. The biggest difference is that as a dealer, you have more context. So you know that this is already a 16-row 1770 NT when you're talking to this customer because that's the planner he has. You know you sold him a Gen 3, so you know that's what he's on. You know he has V-Drive, Delta Force, and Furrow Force, but not smart depth. He runs liquid, but it doesn't. You mean there, there's context you already have that when this customer calls into product support, you have to ask him all those questions, right? Or if dad would have called me and said, Ben, this, this gentleman is struggling with this, I have to ask all these questions because I don't know these things. And that's really... I think the first big distinguishing thing that as a dealer, there are things you know about the planter, but you're also really tempted to make a lot of assumptions. I was going to say, that's a double-edged sword Mm -hmm. of, yes, you have pre-built context, but that also lends towards preconceived notions. Pre-built context. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) agree. And, And by and large, I've experienced it to be more of a hindrance. Truth of the matter is, we serve a wide array of customers, and most of them think of us as their planter experts. There's some that they think of us as one of the places they buy their planter parts, which gets me into real problems. So when this customer calls me up and says, Ben, how do I do this? I first have to ask, is this a Gen 2 or a Gen 3? Because I don't know. Because we sold him a Gen 3, but he has two planters. and I don't know what his other one is. Right? So it, it kind of comes back to that curiosity again. You have to be willing to ask questions to make sure you're on the same page. Now, that's horrendously hard when you've got three other calls that you just missed and you need to get back to them. But being willing to help ask the questions to make sure you're thinking about the right situation goes a long ways. And then to your point of speaking, thinking like the 2020 you have to be willing to say, what is the 2020 assuming 
that I may or may not be able to validate. In uh, one of the most frustrating experiences I had last year, a customer called up and said, my furrow force is doing a horrendous job closing. What does it take to put my V-style closing wheels back on? And I said, well, what's wrong with your furrow force? we got to get this figured out because I, I know it does a fantastic job. And, and there are times it does a good job and then it's not being used well and we just need to use it well and it does a fantastic job. But like the horrendous job that's not in my range of, of knowledge about where furrow force works. And he says, well, we're just leaving the slot open the whole time. And, and so we, we talk through and, and yes, the settings are reasonable. What we eventually learned was the thing the 2020 was assuming to be true was that my air tank has air pressure was not true. When he folded going into that field, he popped off a, off a clean sweep line at the cab, and now he had no air supply. And so 2020 is back there doing its logical processes, saying, yes, I'm not closing all the way, pushing down harder. And this customer says, it's not doing enough. It's not doing enough. This, this tool you sold me is not able to achieve the job I need to do. And so we had to think about it in a way of saying, what does the 2020 need to achieve? And what can it control? And what can it not control? And let's make sure everything it needed was set up for it to succeed. I like the uh, little bit of a Input does not compute with the furrow forces doing a horrendous job. <laughs> what? what? <laughs> I think that conversation been a little bit of, we, we started this with a think like the 2020s talking to you. Like, how do you think the 2020? And it's back to the theory of operation. How does this system get from point A to point B and understanding what happens when one of those, that's what defines, help defines our, our questions of knowing when we're being led astray and when we're not, is understanding how the system functions whether that's a 2020 function, whether that's the Delta Force control algorithm, whether that's the Furrow Force system that's, that's responding, what does it take to get outputs, and what inputs are we looking to accept to actually get that output? Yeah, Tyler, this mimics what you and I did for your class, your preparation for your class in training this year of just going back and working through the list of sign-offs or check-offs that the 2020 has to get through before it will allow seed to drop or liquid to flow or like there's this, this hit list that you go through and just knowing that hit list allows you to better understand or diagnose. I'm not, well, I'm not getting corn seed to drop out of my meter. Okay. Do I have condition one, condition two, condition three met? Like you can just work down through the conditions. Mm -hmm. and, and to that point, it's, I have to tell the, do all the things to have the 2020 try to drop seed, but fundamentally I have to have seed in the hopper and the 2020 can't control that. And the 2020 can't guarantee that. And so there are also the things that are outside of the 2020s control that are needed for overall success. And we have to remember, we have to check those. The 2020 cannot. Are there any tools that when you think about diagnostics, you use on a regular basis or you'd be lost without? And maybe that's as simple, Ben, as yeah, my cell phone. One of the, one of the things that, you know, I will do, or I, for me, personally, Tyler Hubert, as a product support specialist or technician, is I am much more likely to have somebody send me a picture. If it does not compute, take a picture. Here's my email address. Send it my way. Mm -hmm. Let's make sure we're looking at the same page. So even if it's something as simple as got to have the cell phone, which I assume that's true, 
what tools have you found that are, boy, we can't live without this? Yeah. Yeah, I think the cell phone's a great one. And I like to have creative answers, but I'm willing to bandwagon yours. I mean, we talked about cell phones earlier and getting the value out of it I want. Right? It's make a phone call, take a picture, and send it. Right? And that comes down to diagnosing as well. Because it's hard to make a picture lie to me or make a picture <laughs> not say what's really going on. Now it's, now it's time they're cloudy. But if I get a picture, I can circle the area in red and say, but what does this say? Or tell me more about this. And that goes a long ways. In general, in our marketing area where we serve our customers, we have fairly good cell phone signal, but not always. And, you know, we talked earlier, we service customers all across the U.S. And so that, that can get a little bit tricky at times. But using, using FaceTime or even like Facebook Messenger, we did a planner startup for a customer that is a few states away that it was just in the early stages of COVID and we didn't know what travel was really looking like. And we did a whole planner startup. Uh, with video conferencing of getting them going. And so getting to a point that they can share us information has been hugely valuable. And I'd say it's, it's getting to things that cannot be misinterpreted. And so pictures, data, and, and I have a few unique skills to look at data from my time as, a, as an engineer, but in general, field view maps, we know how to interpret field view maps. And we know that we don't always trust them, but we know when we do trust them and when we don't trust them. But if I can get a picture of the actual coverage map of a 2020, not a population map, not a hybrid map, but the coverage map of a 2020 off a of Gen 3 or a Gen 2, either one, that'll tell me so much about whether there was seed in the ground or not. It's hard to make that map lie. Now, I, I believe it can be done. But most customers out there, that map will speak the truth time and time again. Okay. Part of that comes down to if we can set up their system in a way that they can communicate to us over the phone about how it's doing. So running harnesses in ways that we can see they're not pinched, mounting modules in places we can actually see the lights without pulling everything apart. I get to say this for a variety of reasons, but whoever put the SRM inside the PDM without a hole to see the light right? That was a bad move. And I get to say that because that was me, okay. <laughs> right? And, and being in the field, I feel that pain. And if I were to do it again, I'd probably do it slightly differently. That's not what I'm responsible for right now. And that's okay. But there are times that, that as a dealer, I get to set their planter up. And part of what it looks like for service is also part of what it looks like for diagnosing. If I can put the information in front of them, that he can clearly communicate it back to me to keep him running in the future, we're going to have wins. I love that, Ben, because that's the extreme ownership mentality. What, what can I serve in this process? What can I do in this process to help that experience be better? Yeah. All right. Well, so with that, I think we're at a, at a turning point in the conversation where Hans, Tyler, Ben, do you have any wrap-up, closing thoughts, pieces you need to get off your chest at the last minute? For me, I, I just thank you guys for the time. You know, it's a it's a pleasure to sit around and chat again. I feel like I'm among friends. And and obviously there's a lot of time we shared together, but it's fun to keep doing this work and keep pushing it forward. And in being at a dealership level, I feel the support of the whole team back behind. And that's that's a big push being out in the field. And there's been no shortage of challenges this last year, getting planters, getting parts, you know, making sure we're up to speed. 
communicating clear with the customers. And, you know, it, there's a lot of fun because what we're doing is still the good work out in the field. And it's, it's fun to figure out ways to do it better and push it forward. And, and so I appreciate everybody. And I know uh, the other dealers out there, I appreciate them doing the good work in their area. And if there's anything that any of our the listeners here felt like, boy, Ben, I'd, I'd love to hear your perspective. Don't hesitate to reach out or check in. Or if there's anything here that uh, kind of piques your interest, don't hesitate to reach out to me. And, um, you know, if you want to come up to northern Indiana and help with an install or two, see how we do things, we're always short on shop help. We'd love to have you. I think it's great. Uh, just as a little bit of tidy up, we will we will add in the show notes some links to, I know you mentioned McMaster Carr. Um, you have a specific snap ring pliers that you rattle off with such speed we had to catch during one of our breaks here and get some details. We'll, we'll share some. I have some, that link. I, I wrote that down. Hans was very excited about that. <laughs> um, have you ordered a pair yet? Huh? I have not yet. I, have, I figured there's a few more things that got to go with that order. Yeah. So. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't just stop at one. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we'll do that. And also a link to um, Slip for Shiznag, uh their website as well. So that's a little easier to follow. So for Hans, Ben, Tyler, myself, we'd like to sign off and say thank you for coming along with us as we get a little smarter every season. Thank you.